0: Our text today is read from the third chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Before us is the hypothesis of having righteousness before God in the day of judgment upon one of two bases. One source is referred to in this text as the law or the deeds of the law. The other is the faith of Jesus Christ. I believe that the greatest confusion in the Christian world today continues to be a vague or missing understanding of the difference between law and grace. For many the law means good works, obedience, doing the will of God as a means of obtaining God's favor. And this is often said in opposition to faith and grace which are thought to mean that man, devoid of responsibility or active personal goodness before God, is given righteousness without any obligation whatsoever. It's a gift from God that is almost forced on the man. Any thought of responsibilities, duties, or commitments is repugnant. From the Orthodox perspective, This is a deficient view of both grace and law. It will be my purpose to show how both of these theologies have missed the mark. This will be shown not from my own understandings as opposed to someone else's, but by a careful examination of this letter to the Romans and what St. Paul really has to say about law and grace. What is the law in this discussion? And what are the deeds of the law? What are we to understand about these words? The proposition of justification by the deeds of the law means by the terms of the covenant of the law. Men would earn merit with God and establish a state of righteousness before God that would make an eternal relationship possible proper and desirable between God and the people of earth. By the terms and conditions of that old covenant, it was incumbent upon man to deserve God's favor, to merit eternal life, and to prove himself worthy by his own innate moral character. It was man's duty to understand the spirit of the law of God and to keep it. It did not matter whether it was the law in written form or the law of the conscience. It was still man's responsibility. He had to know what it meant. And once knowing it, he had to find the source of power and goodness within himself to obey it. At Sinai, Mount Sinai, God set the terms. If man would keep his part of the bargain, God would keep his. Now you can read about that contract in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, which was not written exactly at Sinai, but was written about Sinai later on. In verses 1 through 14, God told the Israelites of all the wonderful blessings that would be theirs if they would, hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, if thou wilt hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe them and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods and serve them. St. Paul added to these words in Romans chapter 2 and verses 5 through 7 God will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, the reward will be eternal life." But from verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28 to the end of the chapter, God pronounced the most incredible and frightening litany of curses imaginable that would come upon them if they did not obey every single word, thought, and responsibility contained in the law. That was the deal. If men under the law would earn eternal life and the favor and the blessing of God, they would have it. But if they would not, they would not only fail to get it, but they would bring upon themselves unimaginable curses. God is a righteous, fierce, and angry God. He will not be trifled with. He will not be, he will not excuse any defiled sinner who comes before him in judgment. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, the apostle said in Romans 2, 8-10, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, Jew or Gentile." Well, there is certainly nothing inferior or immoral about the proposition of man earning what he gets and getting what he deserves. It was hopefully what man would have done from the creation and it was obviously the best possible situation to develop if it could have developed. It was infinitely preferable to God that man should be good because it was in him to be good than that Jesus Christ would have to suffer and die for the sins of the world in order to provide men that righteousness. The problem with the covenant of the law was that man could not keep his part of the bargain. As a covenant, it was weak through the flesh. Now we have just read how God sees man as to his moral character. God has already issued the warning that if man comes before God on the day of judgment and attempts to plead his case on the basis of the old covenant, he will not be acquitted. He will be found guilty. He will be found guilty. You want to take your chances? Go ahead. You're guilty. Obviously then, we must look for righteousness and justification from another source. We cannot have them, righteousness and justification, that is, by the covenant of the law, because man is not good enough to deserve them. All that the efforts of man by the terms of the law have accomplished is to bring down upon him a hell full of curses. this discussion should not lead men to conclude that God cares nothing about man or that man should develop a low opinion of himself. The point is that people should take into consideration the true demands of justice, acknowledge frankly that they have done wrong and have violated God's law and that they do not deserve eternal life. Any man can go before God and has to be judged on the basis of the law covenant and his own merits under it. But by that term and condition, no one will be found without guilt. All will be condemned who enter into judgment, drawing upon that source in an effort to establish his goodness before God and earn favor from him. You'll get your day in court. You'll get justice but my friend, justice is not what you want. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is that there's another source of righteousness and justification than the law. It's the new covenant, and this source, this righteousness, is said to be by the faith of Jesus Christ. Well, this is not only a different source but it is different in its approach to the subject. The Old Covenant was a contract between God and man, giving man a way, in theory at least, to earn eternal life. In the New Covenant, God is going to offer a gift to those he loves. But there are some things to know about the conditions to be met in order to have it. It does not require the works of the law, but it does require, it does require, a proper understanding and attitude. The rest of Romans 3 and all of chapter 4 will tell you exactly what you have to know, accept and rely on in order to get this gift from God if you will listen to these chapters understand them believe and do this you will receive eternal life from God as a gift well I think it's time now to define some terms the first is justification you would be surprised how many religious people do not know what this word means and that is serious Because we very much need to understand this truth about salvation. Do you know what this word means? Do you know what justification means? Let me ask you a question. Does it mean to be pardoned? Does it? Does it mean to be pardoned? Does it mean to be known to be guilty and to be let off because God is good and will not require it of us? Well, there are many who think and teach that God, through Jesus Christ, has pardoned us. He has tried us and found us guilty. And then, because he is a good, forbearing, and kind God, he has let us off, and it has something to do with Jesus Christ and grace. But the problem is that this idea does violence to justice. Where is the justice in that? When we see judges and courts in misguided efforts to be kind, operating on sentiment rather than sound judgment, turn murderers and rapists loose with a mere slap on the hands, we agonize in anger, frustration, and fear. But the greatest concern is that we are becoming a society of men who have no regard for justice. Instinctively we realize that a society cannot function without justice and it isn't even desirable that it should we don't want to live in a world like that why is it then that we expect god to let vile murderers rapists adulterers rebels crooks thieves hypocrites and other sinful types go with no punishment and no regard For justice. Are you really sure you want God to do that? You know, the old creation started out with two perfect and undefiled people. What would become of the new creation, do you suppose, if it started out with billions of vile and corrupted sinners? Well, we need not be concerned about it because God is not. Going to do that. And we don't have to worry about ourselves and our peace with God because justification does not mean pardoned. It does not mean pardoned. It means acquitted. Justification means acquittal. Justification means to be innocent of guilt. It is not guilty and let off, but tried and found innocent. And you and I will go before God, and we will be tried. But there is a way that we can be found without guilt. There is a way that we can be found innocent. There is a way that it can be determined that we actually merit eternal life. This way is not by the terms of the covenant of the law and man's own innate goodness. It comes from God himself and through the medium of our hearing and believing the message that St. Paul is bringing to us and to the Roman Church. It's through faith in Jesus Christ and what God, through Jesus Christ, has done about the guilt of his fallen creation. It is what God, through his Son, has done to preserve justice and yet provide justification and righteousness for the accused in the day of judgment. God has done something about that. We need to understand this. It is the most basic and essential aspect of salvation, grace, the new covenant, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do not understand this point, you will never understand either the gospel Or the Bible, you need to know what God has done. It's not sufficient that we know only that He has done it. We need to know how and why God proposes to bring man into judgment and find him innocent. How can this be? How can it be that guilty men can be found innocent in the day of judgment? What is it that Jesus Christ did that makes that possible? we just talked about two very different sources. Before we get into the intricate mechanics of Christ's achievement, we need to understand the difference in source. In the creation, God made man in his own image. He started the race through a man named Adam. Pay no attention to what anthropologists, historic geologists, philosophers, and science tell us. All of the race of man in this world came from Adam. Every single man came from a real historic person named Adam. One of the efforts of anthropology is to trace the origins of all the various nationalities. Hmm. It's too bad they're not Bible-reading men. The 10th and 11th chapter of the book of Genesis tells us where all the races came from, where they all went, and where they all settled. Every man in this world was a descendant of Adam and later on a descendant of Noah. The universal fallen and sinful condition of man descended from Adam. The day came when God said that Adam's children were never going to justify themselves and they were never going to know his laws, much less to keep them If he was going to salvage his creation, he was going to have to do something entirely different. And so what God did was to start a new race of men in this world with the second or the last Adam. Only this time it was not a creature made from the clay by the hands of God. God took upon himself human form. Now, we're not going to digress at this time to discuss the puzzling ministry of the triune God. The three in one, we'll simply acknowledge that there is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. We'll reserve that discussion for a time when it is in the context of the study. God came into this world and took upon himself the form of man. Now, this is not so strange when you consider that man was made in the image of God. Now we find God coming down in the image of man, taking upon himself flesh, and beginning a new race. At that time, and in that way, God began an entirely different program by which man would become righteous. This was predicted in antiquity by Jeremiah in the famous 31st chapter of his prophecy. God found fault with the old covenant and said plainly, that's not going to work. He said that there was no way these fallen creatures were going to justify themselves under the old operation. But the days were coming, said the Lord, when he was going to make a new covenant, and it was not going to be like that old covenant, because in this new covenant, God, by himself, with no help from man, would do all of the things for men that they could not do for themselves. Yet it would be through man, because in Jesus Christ we find a man in this world, not a child of Adam now, but in the likeness of Adam's children, and definitely a man who would meet the conditions that God required. For since by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ the second or the last Adam shall all be made alive. That's First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. How could that be? Well, it's very simple. If God could create man to begin with and make a living soul of him from the dust of the ground, what problem is it for God to take upon himself the form of that man which he created and come into this world where he placed man in his own image to begin with and walked with man in the cool of the day. You see, all of these large intellectual biological problems that people think they see in these great truths of the Bible are cleared up when you acknowledge the existence and the greatness of God the Creator God came into this world and did several things. First of all, he kept the law, that righteous standard which every man must keep in order to find justification before the Father in the day of judgment. Remember, too, according to Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen to 66 that the breaking of the law had brought a curse that had to be removed. That's a little bit of a different discussion shooting off in a different direction. Now, once having kept that law, Jesus Christ took our place in judgment and offered his life in exchange for ours. Now, some people have wondered how this could be. How could one man offer himself in exchange for all men? Do not forget that we are thinking in terms of God the Creator, His program, His plan, and what pleases God. To uphold justice, someone had to die for the evils that had been committed. Justice goes down the drain when crimes go unpunished. If Jesus Christ was willing to give His life for those He loved, that was acceptable to the Father. And Jesus Christ did die. He did come into this world not to bear the wrath of man, which he did, but primarily to take our place in judgment and bear the wrath of God. He was forsaken by the Father. He was punished to death, and he went into hell, the place of the damned. Isaiah 53, 8-10 and Acts two twenty-seven to 33 make it clear. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither will thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Now, St. Peter said that David was not speaking of himself, because he is dead, and his flesh did see corruption. But he was speaking of Christ, the typical son of David, that Christ's soul was not left in Hades. Neither did his flesh see corruption. This is Acts chapter 2, and verse 29. Jesus Christ went into hell, the place of the damned. Never doubt it for a moment because that was necessary in order to take our place in, just, in judgment. We regret the ignorance of well-meaning but unlearned men who do not believe that, but we cannot sacrifice this essential truth of the gospel at their altar. Next week, we will pursue this message of propitiation through the work of Christ in the cross and the gift of grace.